Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, ladies, gentlemen, boys and girls, and whoever else is out there. This is Dr. Simon, and the show is called The Stories We Live By. Uh, first, let me say that uh, when I hang up, I'm going to cancel last week's show. I'm going to pull it off, delete it. Um, I really couldn't think of a topic, and somebody on the web chat had mentioned dreams and had an interest in that, and I think that's a perfectly valid interest, but I really didn't have any great feeling for doing the show, and uh, it sort of came across, I think, flat. Uh, and the number of the small number of people who will listen to it, I think, confirms that. And the more I think about it, and when I tried to listen to it again, I said, this is not exactly uh, what I really want as part of my series, so I'll pull it, and I apologize for doing it, and I apologize to anybody who feels uh, slighted that I pull it, but I don't think that'll be an issue. Let me tell you about today's show. I want to talk about really two, two things under one topic. I put down uh, the title as uh, the isms that uh, define our lives and define our relationships, sexism, racism, and I'll get to in a moment why I picked that. Uh, and then I want to split it between all forms of the show, all kinds of dehumanizations that are really so much a part of life in our society, I think in most societies. Uh, but things are happening in our culture. Changes are taking place that either I think are potentially very good or I think deadly in a way for all of us. And so I will discuss a couple of things related to what I call psychiatric or the mental health industries, dehumanization of us, in a response to the kind of societal dehumanization that I think is going on. That is, where we're being stripped of our identities and stripped of our individual beliefs um, and turned into uh, some kind of mechanical object, some kind of puppet, or very often monsters. And I'll explain that in a moment. Um, it's easy to become a monster. I think much harder to remain a human being under certain kinds of, of societal and uh, familial and other relationships. What set me off to do this show about racism and sexism was a discussion I had with a number of people about the democratic uh, race for the candidate for president. And one person said, uh, I couldn't never vote for a woman. And I was struck by that. Uh, and I really couldn't get into asking, why couldn't you vote for a woman? It's not that she said, I can't vote for Hillary. I can't vote for a woman. Now, had she said, I can't vote for Hillary, that's a different story. Um, because you don't have to like the particular woman who's running. Um, I could have asked her at that point, why not Hillary? And she could have said a variety of things, uh, like I don't like her policies. Uh, but I knew she did like the policies, because one of the things we had discussed is that for most of us, we're so fed up and sickened by the seven years under the Republicans and the Bush administration. And that's something I want to talk about in terms of dehumanization. Um, if not today, I'll put some of it in another time. But it was not her policies. It was that she couldn't vote for a woman, not even a specific woman, Hillary, but a woman. 
And someone else said, uh, I don't mind Barack Obama, but I don't think I could ever vote for a black man. And that had me sitting straight up. Because um, the very fact that a woman is running and a man of color is running, I'll talk a little bit about this idea of a black man, uh, the very fact that someone is running as a black, as, as, a, as a man of color and a woman gives me a certain kind of hope, uh, and that both of them could be in the lead for the Democratic nomination, having garnered by now millions of votes from all manner of people, men, women, children, uh, 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 young people, um, uh, the old and the youth, uh, the more educated, the less educated, gives me a certain hope. And I really need to hold on to hope at this point, because in so many ways, what I see happening in our society uh, is so strangling, it is so dehumanizing, it is so painful that um, I lose hope, not for me uh, particularly, but for my children and especially uh, my six grandchildren. Uh, I keep hearing from so many people, you look at little kids and they'll say, what kind of a society, what kind of world will they grow up in? So, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, the dehumanization that takes place and talk about racism and sexism and other forms of dehumanization that, uh, that, that are so endemic to all of human life, but particularly on a societal level when you hear somebody say, I could never vote for a black man and I could never vote for someone, I could never vote for a woman. And I want to talk about it is particularly in terms of what it means for that person who says it. Not merely the prejudice and the damage it does when somebody can't see another human being but for their color or but for their sex, but what it does for the self, what it does for you as a human being to look at another human being and not see them as a person. And I want to do something with you that I did with my students. I, did, I wrote about this in one of my books. Um, because when you, when you see someone only for their color and only for their religion or only for their sex, then I think you're cutting out all of the individuality that makes them a very specific very creative, and always an interesting human being. When you see somebody and take their entire being and reduce it to one facet, when any of us do this, we're not seeing a full person. I question whether we can ever see ourselves as a full person. And I want to talk about where I think this comes from. Uh, <clears throat> we're why is it we can so easily dehumanize other individuals or dehumanize whole blocks of individuals, huge numbers of individuals, so that when we look uh, on the basis of what we call race or sex, we have a single derogatory word that encapsulates all of these human beings and reduces them to non-human beings. Now, let me put the word monster in here, because I think this is very, very important. When I was a youngster, a fairly young teenager, 
uh, I really was very isolated socially in many ways um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I could never dance well. Uh, I couldn't hear rhythm very well. I mean, I was like, I, one of my favorite films was this, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Martin, uh, oh, never mind. And it was this film called, the, 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 he plays a white guy raised by a black family. I'm so sure somebody will write and tell me what the title was. And uh, he can't have rhythm. And that's how they figure out he's white, or he figures out he's white, because the black family has great rhythm. Well, my wife has rhythm. Many of my friends had rhythm. They could dance. What I loved to listen to was uh, Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, Beethoven. I didn't hear rhythm so much primarily. I heard structure. My mind went to structure, to, to, to ideas that had certain complexity. And I'm not saying this is better or worse. In fact, if I could do it over again, I would give up that facility in order to hear rhythm that I might be able to dance. But anyway... I stayed home a lot, and I used to watch these funny movies on uh, Channel 11. They were back then in New York, uh, the Bela Lugosi movies and the Lon Chaney movies of the Wolfman and, and Dracula. And these were monsters. And many years, I, I wondered what was the fascination with monsters, and I finally came across a wonderful article by somebody who wrote about what the definition of a monster is. A monster... <clears throat> is a being that looks human but cannot see the humanity in others. A monster basically does evil. And I, I see evil, I define evil as being indifferent to the pain of other human beings because you can't see them as human. And that's evil with a little e. I also believe in evil with a big e. And that is where you inflict harm and pain on another human being and either can't see the consequences of your actions or actually enjoy it. And most of us rebel against the idea that evil might actually exist. But I think that a study of history and a look at the world around us uh, finds many examples of evil. And I think to the degree that most of us are racist and sexist and prejudiced in all manner of ways against all manner of people, so that we either can't see their humanity, their pain, or can't see the, the pain that we have, that we create in them, that the part we play in, in defeating them as human beings, that we're all to some degree monsters, and I include myself in that. Okay? Now, I, I want to know where this comes from. First of all, let me make a confession. I personally, at this point, are so horrified by the Republican Party and what it's done in the last seven years. I won't go through what I think they have done to damage this country under George Bush. And by following George Bush, even though many of them secretly and privately uh, are now saying they despised what the man has done, but they went along for the sake of the party. They went along for the sake of their own profits. They went along for the sake of their own power. Uh, I don't think I could cast a vote for a Republican. And I should tell you that while I've always been a Democrat, a registered Democrat, uh, I have voted for many Republicans over the years. And some of my favorite columnists are Republican-leaning or conservative-leaning. So I don't have a, 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 a knee, you know, a knee reflex, a, a, a knee-jerk reflex against Republicans. But at this point, I would vote for any Democrat. Yeah. 
I'm aware when I look at Barack Obama of his color. Now, certainly that's not going to stop me from voting for him if he becomes the nominee. Um, and I think whoever he is and whatever he does, uh, he will make a far better, more humane, uh, less monstrous president than the man we have in the White House who, along with Cheney and Rumsfeld, to me represented monsters par excellence. Uh, the damage they have caused to all of us and to those hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions overseas, uh, in the name of what I believe to be profits and power and false ideologies is just beyond reckoning. History will reckon it, uh, but I think it's too raw and too immediate for it to be reckoned by us right now. So I do believe that this is a big problem. When I see Hillary, uh, there are times I don't see a woman. I just see a person. <clears throat> uh, so I think of my, my faults or my failings. I'm more racist than I am uh, uh, sexist. But I am racist. Certainly, uh, I am racist when I see color. I think anybody who sees that first about the individual and even has to think about it as racist or has a racist piece to their story, their life story. I was certainly raised with many deep prejudices that over the years I think I have overcome or at least I could work through so that ultimately when I see someone of color, I am fully capable of seeing ultimately the human being that in addition to the cast of the color of the skin. I, I think that is so. Uh, I think the people who know me would say that is so. So I would define myself as having racism, but with a small R. Like evil, uh, it's a small E and a small R. Uh, when somebody says they could not vote for this individual because of his color, now that's approaching big R. And when I hear somebody say he's a nigger or a schwarzer, uh, and I hope somebody shoots him because I actually heard that expression, uh, not from somebody I know, but from somebody uh, that I was passing by and didn't know that I was overhearing this conversation, I become really upset because that at that point is so dehumanizing and so paralyzing uh, and so dangerous uh, that I think it raises to big E and big R, big evil and big racism, and that is, is terrible uh, for the country, but it's also terrible for the person uttering it. Okay? I don't think you could dehumanize others without dehumanizing yourself. <clears throat> and I'll tell you what I think the antidote to this is, is love, respect. I don't think that you can uh, uh, not, it, it, if you can't see others and see them as capable of love and feel some kind of love or affection for them, that you can't be surprised by them, that, that you can't see the value in their life, which is inherent in love, uh, then I think you have trouble loving yourself, and I think that there is a, a danger because you're now cutting yourself off from human beings. And the love that we have is what connects us to human beings. And to lose love is to make us lonely and is to tie us up in knots and, and to build a wall around ourselves that puts others out but locks us in. Um, you know, it's interesting. There are people that I know who are obsessed with the gate on our community coming down 
Uh, it's like they would like to uh, build a moat around the development and put alligators in, and then barbed wire on 12-foot electrified fences and guard their house with guns and knives uh, without realizing that they're locking themselves in as well as locking the world out. Maybe there's danger out there, but ultimately when you start doing that, I think the biggest danger you have is yourself to yourself rather than from anybody on the outside uh, that might want to harm you or hurt you. Let me talk about, again, something uh, that I used to do, and if those of you who are interested, you could do this for yourself. It's a kind of an evaluation of self, all right? It's knowing yourself, and I think that's the antidote or part of the antidote uh, to being having these feelings of racism or religious hatred or intolerance, which I think are so hurtful and harmful to those of us who hold them. Uh, it makes us so limited and so lonely. Uh, the first thing is, um, let me start with my name, Lawrence Simon. Uh, actually, I used to like the word Lawrence. Uh, I didn't like the word Lawrence as I was growing up. I liked Larry. Uh, Lawrence was too heavy. And I think I may have said this before on the show. Uh, I can't get anybody to call me Lawrence now, but I really do like Lawrence. I think Lawrence, uh, for a man of my age, has a certain weight and a gravitas that uh, Larry doesn't have. But I'm Larry, so I'll use Larry. Uh, uh, and my last name is Simon. And it took me a long time to figure this out, but I was fairly well-loved by my parents and my family. Lawrence is a Simon. And there were aspects of being Larry or Lawrence that didn't match up to the expectations that my family had of a Simon. If you're a member of this family, you will do, you will say, you will think. And to the degree that I was and I fell into being a Simon, and I am very proud and happy to be a Simon, you see, being Larry fit well with being a Simon. But to the degree that I had other interests, desires, would say, do, or think things that were not according to the expectations of being Simon, there was conflict. And I have learned that much of the dehumanization that takes place in people's lives that, that makes them crazy, that, that, that damages them, is that the point at which their family says, you can't be a member of this family for who you are. You will have to be someone other than who you are. If you're a girl and your parents wanted a boy, uh, <clears throat> if you um, are gay and your parents wanted straight, if you were too tall, if you were too short, if your parents divorced and you look like your father and your mother hates your father. Now, I've seen this over 40 years of working with people, you see, where the parents themselves see something essential in their child that makes that child unacceptable to them. And that child, in order to be loved, in order to be accepted for themselves, for who they are, has to now bend themselves into a pretzel and deny all aspects, many, so many aspects of themselves to become something that ultimately they're not and never will become. 
And this turns them against themselves. And in many of my shows, I have discussed that, where they split away certain essential aspects of their thinking, their feeling, their desires, their individuality. And they make themselves into their family structure so that all of the individuality is lost. And they feel lonely and angry and frightened. And I think they hate the individuality in others. Next, I soon learned that Lawrence Simon was Jewish. Now, this is an interesting one. My struggle about being Jewish was not that I was ever not proud of being a Jew. But Lawrence, Larry, had very different ideas that many of my religious teachers had about what it was to be a Jew. And here again, while I was happy to be a Simon, and I was lucky enough to be loved by my parents, so that ultimately most of what I was and who and who I became as I grew up was acceptable to them, which is the definition of being loved, even if it meant they had to alter their expectations or change their ideas, you see. But for many of the religious instructors I had, I wasn't Jewish enough. That was a struggle, you see. I did discover by the time I was five years old, 1945, that much of the world despised me because I was Jewish. And that in Germany and all over Europe, Jews had been killed literally by the millions. Men, women, little children, old people, killed, put into ovens and baked, tortured with surgeons without medicine, had their skin pulled off and made into slipcovers and lampshades. Atrocities beyond imagination. Because the Nazis, and those who went along with them, which were millions and millions of people, didn't see a Jew as a human being. They would not have seen me as a human being. They saw me as a disease that had to be cured and eradicated from the fatherland. The ultimate in evil. The ultimate in monster-making. And so I've been very sensitive to this. I don't care what a person's religion is, but make it personal. Make it part of who you are. Make your own individual take on it central to your belief in that. Uh, A recent study that showed just last week in the New York Times was all over the air. 44% of Americans have changed the religious affiliation that they were raised with. I love it. Although I certainly hope that the religion they picked was more tolerant and more cosmopolitan than maybe the one they came in out with. And I don't mean just tolerant of other people in other religions. I do believe that the more intolerant you're raised in a religion, the more intolerant you're going to be of yourself, and the more intolerant you're going to be of others. Which is why I say you cannot dehumanize others without being dehumanized yourself. And most of us who dehumanize others were, in fact, first dehumanized by our family or by our religion. I don't believe any religion is worth a spit if it doesn't allow for debate, for doubt, and for individual discussion. That's my point. That's my, how I feel, as deeply as I know how to feel. Right? Lawrence Simon 
was happy to be a Simon, happy to be a Jew, although struggling with being a Simon and being an individual, with being a Jew and being an individual, proud and happy to this day to be an American. And what kind of discussions do we have going on in the political system? Who's American enough? What is American enough? These assholes all over the political spectrum wrapping themselves in flags and saying, if you disagree with your country's philosophy, as expressed by them, you're not an American. You are not a good person. You're a bad person. You're a traitor. You're a communist. You're this or you're that. Bullshit, I say to them. Bullshit. They are monster-making. The damage they do to those on the political spectrum who disagree with them is enormous, but ultimately they cut themselves off from their own feelings. And they're doing this because somehow on some level they are terrified of their own individuality. And in the name of their own power, their own greed, they are willing to hurt and damage untold millions of people because they can't see those people as human beings who have a different opinion. Instead, they see them as, as something alien and something harmful. Uh, 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 and listen to some of these people, Coulter and, 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 and uh, Rush Limbaugh. Listen to the hatred. Listen to the derogation. And, and if it doesn't turn you off, look in the mirror and ask, why would I enjoy this kind of dehumanizing rhetoric all over the radio? I am a man, but I'm a man my way. And that was always a struggle for me because I did like Rachmaninoff when everybody liked rock and roll. I never fully liked sports. One of the reasons I'm so fanatical now about tennis and so desperate that my surgery on the 26th to fix my knee with my torn meniscus and, and, and arthritis worked is I get back to being a manly tennis player. I love it. I love it. Um, but never really an issue. It's interesting that when I look at my, my, uh, Barack Obama or McCain, I don't see the issue of man being an issue because I take for granted my own manhood. I take it more for granted. As a Jew, I'm very hypersensitive to that. And it's interesting, Catholics are more sensitive to being Catholic because they have experienced much prejudice in this society. Uh, Protestants who own the country, they never think about the, the, themselves as Protestants. Uh, I look at McCain and the fact that he's white, which is another issue. I grew up in a white neighborhood. It never thought about white as my part of my identity. I slipped into it like a glove. Okay? So it's the people who hold you in prejudice that make you aware that you have to defend your identity as as a Jew in this case, or as in terms of your color. White people don't think about being white. Nobody would say, gee, can a white man be president of the United States? Why not? Have the white men who have been presidents of the United States done such a spectacular job? Is white really superior to all other colors? In the eyes of many white people, it is. So they don't think about it. Because at least in this country, where being white has never led you to be prejudiced, to be discriminated against, or to be dehumanized, 
the fault lines in our country are race, color, sex is a very big one, all over the world, by the way. Gender and sex are big ones. Unless we start to see all over the world women as equals of us as men and stop seeing them just as women with all of the derogatory comments about women, she's a piece of ass, she's a cunt, you see, uh, uh, she's a bitch. I went into a bagel store some years ago, a few years ago, and a young girl walking behind the counter had a shirt on called Super Bitch. And I said to her, you really wouldn't wear that. Your enemies want you to say of yourself, you are a bitch, a female dog in heat. I became a psychologist and proud to be a psychologist. And for things I'm saying here about the myth of mental illness and all of the crap that goes on in my field, I take a lot of hits. But I have enough strength and firmness in my own opinions to say, go to hell. I am Lawrence, the psychologist. Well, Lawrence Simon, the psychologist, it's going to be my way. I'm going to be a man my way. I'm going to be a Simon my way. I'm going to be an American my way. I'm going to be a Jew my way. I'm going to be white my way. <clears throat> and I would hope that all of you, if you assess yourself in this way, will ask, what comes before my name? Do I put sex before my name or gender or white, your color, or your religion. You can do it. You're free to do it. I hope you won't do it. I hope you will see your first name as being the predominant force and storyteller of your existence. Okay? Now, I want to finish up with a little today about psychiatry and psychology. Uh, I'm going to do a separate show on this again, but I want to put it in here. Um, <clears throat> There was an article that came across, I didn't even know this, apparently this happened in, in um, I think, Kentucky, Tennessee. This was happened in Tennessee. Some time ago I did a show on the death of Rebecca Riley, a little girl who died of an overdose of psychiatric drugs given to her by a moron psychiatrist who couldn't see her as a two-year-old child in rebellion growing up, instead saw her as a bundle of symptoms and a brain in need of tweaking, and, and gave this little baby all kinds of horrendous drugs that ultimately her parents overdosed her with, not to kill her, but she died, and they're now on trial for murder. And here we have a story about a little girl named Cheyenne Delp, <clears throat> uh, who died on June 26, 2004. Uh, she apparently was orphaned, uh, and she was taken care of by some woman who was apparently beating her with a strap. When they did the post-mortem on this child, uh, they found terrible scars all over her back. So this child was being beaten, and this same woman who brought her to a psychiatrist, a moron psychiatrist, uh, and uh, who dehumanized her, um, and helped dehumanize her according to the whim of the woman who was beating her and who is now being held for murder, whose trial just started, for taking the same belt that she beat the child with and strangling her to death. But when the child uh, was autopsied and, and looked at, this child may not even have been known she was being beaten and she may not have even known she was being strangled to death. She was so heavily sedated by Dr. Mudumbi, 
What was his name? That's a good name for him. Saran Mudumbi. M-U-D-U-M-B-I. Dumb is center of his name, Mr. Dr. Dumbi. And this is what he said. He said his his specialty is child psychiatry, and he testified that he prescribed an assortment of drugs for Cheyenne because her behavior was out of control, according to her guardian, Sherry Mathis, the woman who killed her. Whenever I hear that a child is out of control, I always ask, out of whose control? Out of whose control? Tech Tips is my show on. Can any of you hear my show? If you can't hear, if you can hear this, would you please let me know? This is terrifying that I may have done over 30 minutes and nobody can hear me. Hey, Tech Tips, can you hear me? Marion? You're supposedly there. Can you hear me? Oh, this is terrible. Oh, wow. Okay, let me finish this up anyway. And I'll see when I go on, was it on? Um, oh, great, Marion, thank you. Um, I don't know if tech tips can hear me. But anyway, it doesn't matter. So she's out of control. Every child I've ever seen who's been called out of control was not out of control of themselves. They were desperate under the circumstances that they were dealing with, which was usually a dehumanizing family situation. The, the child, um, in this case, was being beaten. And she was aggressive to other children. She was kicked out of school before. When you beat children, they become aggressive to others, as is done to them. They're angry. They're frightened. They're terrified, which is the source of most rage and aggression. Right? But this man never investigated the child's life. He just prescribed. And when the child told him that others, she felt that, she was, being, she was in danger. She was thinking other people were against her. He diagnosed her as paranoid and psychotic. And by the time she died, this baby was on imipramine, an antidepressive that is so powerful that the child needed an electrocardiogram to see if her heart could stand it. She was on Respidol, Benadryl, Seroquel, Guanfacine, five psychiatric drugs. This kid walked around like she was a zombie, being beaten, being dehumanized and destroyed by the woman who was supposedly there to take care of her and love her and show her compassion. See? And here is this doctor and all of these psychiatrists who look at us and don't see a suffering human being in the context of their life but see something to be shut down, to be immobilized, to be drugged. And for those of you who are taking these drugs, you are dehumanizing yourself. You are not giving yourself credit for the struggle of your life. You're not finding ways to struggle with your life. I know it's difficult. It's difficult for all of us. But don't listen to these people. Another article that comes across today, I love this one. It's very good. Let me see. Here it is. Uh, it's Saturday, Sunday night, and this article is called The Medicated American. It came over, uh, it's called Medicated Americans Antidepressant Prescription on the Rise. 
close to 10% of men and women in America are now taking drugs to combat depression. Right? I'll forgive the guy that he still believes that depression is actually an illness. Well, of course, the article is so good. It's Sunday night, the medicated American, let's call her Julie, let's place her in Winterset, Iowa, is getting ready for bed. Monday morning and its attendant pressures, the rush to get out of the house, the long commute. I wake up every morning and I say, I don't have to sit on the Belt Parkway in New York for an hour, needing a bathroom, needing to pee. Talk about being dehumanized by your own uh, life structure and lifestyle. The bustle of the office loom. She opens the cabinet in the bathroom vanity, removes a medicine bottle and taps a pill into her palm. She fills a glass of water, places the colorful pill in her mouth and swallows. The little pill could be any one of 30 available drugs used as antidepressants such as Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Celexa, Lexapro, or Luvox, or Buspar, or Nardil, or Elevil, or Cinequan, or Pamelor, Serazone, or Deseril, or Norpramin, Tafranil, Adapin, I won't go on. The pill makes a slight flutter as it passes down her throat. Julie examines her face in the mirror and sighs. She hopes that by some Monday morning in the future, if not tomorrow morning, then some mythical, brilliant, and shimmering Monday morning a month from now, two months from now, or three, the pills will have worked some inexorable magic, correcting this chemical imbalance or something, as the Zoloft commercial had said. Zoloft, the prescription medicine can help. It works to correct chemical imbalances in the brain. Julie didn't know if she had a chemical imbalance nor does she actually know what one is. It had never really occurred to her that she could have a mental illness. Like you know from listening to my show, it's a physical illness. But she does hope fervently that her life will become a little easier, a little less stressed soon. She hopes desperately that the pills will make her feel better. They don't. And if they do, a recent study, a massive study, showed by somebody who did research and got all of the failed tests from the drug companies that all of these pills work no better than a placebo. They're magic. Poor Julie is being given magic. And why is she depressed? Because her life is shit. Because she is living a life that is so dehumanized. She's in a job in which she's probably not respected in which her individual creativity doesn't matter. Maybe she didn't get enough education. Maybe she's poor. Maybe uh, she's been suppressed because she's a woman. Maybe because she's a minority and she's of color. Maybe because of her religion. All kinds of dehumanizations that have taken place that Julie can't find a place for herself in which when she gets up in the morning, She faces the day not as somebody's idea of what she should be, but as Julie, before being a woman, before being her religion, before being American, before being someone's mother. Oh, can we do a show on what women are expected to become when they're mothers? And how many women dream of the time that their kids will grow up or their husbands and their children will see them as people, not as mothers. Not even as just wives, but as Julie. I need to be seen as Larry and heard as Larry. It's essential. 
I don't think anyone listening to this has any less need than I have to be that individual. And when I look at the political structure, when I look at what's going on at the level of rhetoric that dehumanizes others, uh, where none of this is ever discussed, where it's hidden, and I still hear someone say, I could never vote for a woman, I could never vote for a black man. I despair. I really do despair sometimes that this is so dangerous. Uh, an article in the Sunday New York Times this week, more and more people hate their jobs. They're working in dead-end jobs. They're working more hours for less pay. They don't have health insurance. Millions of Americans don't have health insurance. Millions of Americans are here working either on green card or as illegal aliens. And I'm not going to get involved in what I think should be done to, to uh, uh, secure the country from illegal immigrants. I think something should be done, but not by dehumanizing these individuals and not recognizing that the value of their life is the same as the value of every other life on this planet. And that unless they can find a way to get past their non-Americanness, and unless we help them, all we continue to do is to rack up the damage that we're doing to millions of human beings and becoming monsters ourselves, frightened, hating, alienated, etc. So, that's it for today. I think I've done enough. It is 20 to 5. Uh, anybody wants to call in? Anybody wants to write? Uh, I'm happy with today's show. Uh, I will leave this one on and take off the one that uh, I have from last week, which is, just doesn't fit. It was so academic. Uh, I, I felt like I wasn't even doing it myself. Thank you for listening. I hope I can think of something good for next week. Uh, in fact, I, I, I really think I can uh, do a good one for next week. Um, I have a wonderful colleague I'm going to try to interview. She's a psychiatrist, uh, and she is even more angry at psychiatry uh, than I am. Uh, her name is Grace Jackson. She has a wonderful book called Rethinking Psychiatric Drugs, A Guide for Informed Consent. And she and I have decided to write a kind of, maybe we can, a science fiction novel about what's actually coming home, uh, what's actually going on in this country. They're now trying to develop machines that will actually read our mood. Uh, can you imagine there'll be a machine somewhere and they'll put it on your head, or maybe you'll have a transmitter right on your head or in your head. And so if they diagnose you as depressed, they can take you in and force you to take psychiatric drugs so you can become the happy moron that the psychiatric profession, and that my whole profession, seems to want people to be. Part of the mob someone without individuality, someone who doesn't want to really be human, doesn't want to see humanity as humanity. It's really scary. So we're going to write that book. We're going to write that book. Although <clears throat> Brave in the World was already written, and as I said to my friend Grace, we can't rewrite that book. And anybody who has never read Great Brave in the World, really authored by Aldous Huxley, where the central, or everybody is raised uh, to be uh, what their level is supposed to be. So there's the intelligent people, the workers, 
and they're all not allowed to get any more education or to be smart than their level. And everybody at the first sign of upset takes a pill called Soma. Okay? <clears throat> and they go to the movies, they don't feel anything, and there are no relationships, no family. And you go to the movies where they have orgies, where they call orgy porgies, uh, and everybody has as much random sex as possible. Uh, really great fun, but nothing is humanized. Everything is dehumanized. Uh, and so I think I'm going to say goodbye and hello, Nikki. Uh, nice to talk to you. Um, and uh, again, I keep meaning to get on in the morning, but I'm always out in the morning when you do your show. I, I feel bad about it, but I really would like to come on and discuss some of this stuff on your show. So uh, let me know. And uh, to everybody, take care, and I'll talk to you next week. Goodbye.